Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Excellent singing this morning. Two weeks ago, we had our Vision Sunday, um, and in that, we talked about the importance of sharing the gospel, and that is our uh, our, our goal, our vision, our mission as a church, not just this year, but, but every year, but this year, we want to place an emphasis on that, is to share the gospel with the people in our lives and in our communities. Last week, we discussed what is the gospel, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus came to earth, died, was buried, and rose again. Why? For the sins of mankind. What I want to do over the next four weeks is kind of expand on that. Uh, Define the gospel a little bit more, and there are four simple words that we're going to go through in the next four weeks. God, man, Christ, and response. Now you say, I, I think I've heard that before. Maybe you have. Maybe you remember that a few years ago. Um, evangelist Will Galkin preached on those four words. You say, are you copying him? No, he copied someone else. So uh, This is something that has been used. It's been in many books. It's uh, something that many preachers have used. And it's just a, a way for us to remember the importance of the gospel and remember what the gospel means. There's actually two books that I'm using as quite a bit of resources. And, um, and uh, one is called Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. And the other one is called What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Uh, If you want more information on those, you can see me. Uh, There's other books that talk about that. But we're going to look at those four simple words, God, man, Christ, and response. As we said last week, every time we hear the gospel, it demands a response. Uh, Whether you're a believer and you have been your whole life, or whether this is the first time you've heard this word gospel, it's something that demands a response as we hear what it is. But those four words are going to help us understand better the good news that God has for us, but also help us to understand better how to share the gospel with others. But it starts with simply God. Who is God? Let me ask you a question. What do you know about God? Now, for some of you, that maybe is a small book. For some of you, it's, man, you've studied it your whole life. But what is, it, what is the first thing you think about when I say God? Think about that for a moment. See, I think that the, the problem is, is we must really know who God is. And I think that one of the big problems in our churches and, and in our country is that we don't really know God. And we're confused about who God is, and if, and if we're confused about who God is, then we're going to be confused about the gospel. And I think there are many wrong assumptions, and uh, you know, many times we interact with people. Yesterday, uh, kind of a weird circumstance that uh, I experience sometimes, uh, Pastor Nate and I have um, clothing, apparel, that has First Baptist on it. We have a number of things that we wear. And uh, my wife says I wear it a lot, and uh, I think Nate wears it a lot as well. And so, uh, but yesterday I was in a gas station, and my shirt said First Baptist Church, and this guy says to me, First Baptist Church, huh? Can I ask you a question? And we ended up having about a 10-minute conversation about the gospel. And I had an opportunity to share with him, he's from India, and I had an opportunity to share with him what the gospel was, but as I was listening to him talk, he says, well, I believe in God, well, I believe in a a being up there that's bigger than me. 
And I said, well, that's, God's more than just a being that's bigger than you. And as we talk about God, I think many times that there are wrong assumptions of God. And I want to look at four of them that I think not only impact the world around you and people you're going to come in contact with, but I think in many cases impact you. Wrong assumptions about God. The first one is this. If I make a decision which honors God, he will honor me with good. Many times Christians believe that. There are Christians throughout this world that think, if I just do the right things, if I just please God, God's going to give me blessings and benefits. If I just live my life the way God wants me to, everything in my life is going to be smooth sailing. For example, many Christians believe that if they choose the right spouse, that God is going to guarantee that their marriage works out okay. We don't see that anywhere. Or if I pick the right job, if I choose the job God wants me to do, then I'm going to get lots of money and I'm going to experience tremendous success. That's not a biblical statement. Or, here's another one, and this is a hard one sometimes for us to swallow. If I'm a good parent, then my kids are going to turn out right. That is not a biblical guarantee. And sometimes we think, if I do this, God is automatically going to reward me. As if he's some God up in heaven and he's sitting there going, okay, here's your little sticker for doing good, now I will give you your benefits. And I don't think that's the right view of God, and I think the Bible plays that out for us. The second wrong assumption I think sometimes we make is all God wants me to do is go to church. While church should be a priority of every Christian, there is this common assumption that is made that as long as we're going to church, that the other influences I put in my life aren't going to really impact me, as, as if I'm impervious to other temptations because I'm here at church. And that's not true. Or some people think that if I balance them out, well, you know, I, I watch so much of this wrong influence or I listen to this wrong influence, but hey, I go to church as well, that somehow it balances it out. And that's not accurate. And the reality is is that uh, while church is a vital part for all Christians, it's important that we nurture our spiritual growth through the way that we live, through the things that we put in our life, and through our personal relationship with God. And so God wants more from you than just that. The third wrong assumption I think that sometimes we make about God is that God is waiting for me to mess up and will never be pleased with me. Now, some of these contradict each other, I, I understand. But there are some people that believe that, that God is just waiting for me to mess up. Do you feel like you've made a huge mess of your life? Do you, are, are you thinking that surely God must be sick and tired of your blunders, your mistakes, that he's, that he's just sick of it, and he's sick of who you are, and he's waiting for that moment where he can just unleash his wrath upon you? you know, so many Christians assume that Man, all I need to do is if I get my act together, and maybe even then I get my act together and God still won't be happy with me because God's never happy. And sometimes that's what people think. The truth is, is you can't be a perfect person. You can't follow the scriptures perfectly. It's impossible to do everything on your own. None of us can, but that does not mean that God is eternally angry at you. And the fourth assumption is a long one here, but there's some people who believe this. God, God has changed. You know, he used to be, back in the Old Testament, he used to be this cranky, judgment-loving God who would rain fire down from heaven, right? 
But today, he's a God who understands that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner, and he just leaves us alone because he loves you. We just assume that he's going to forgive us no matter what we do and no matter how we act, and and he loves us, and he'll turn his head away from us while we fall into sin. You know, there's, there's a number of theologians today, I shouldn't call them theologians, heretics, that are teaching that there's no way a loving God could have a, create a hell. And that's just simply not true. So what I want to do is I want to give you an, uh, an accurate description of who the God of the Bible really is. And because I believe that until we can fully understand who the God of the Bible is, who this deity is that we call God, we cannot fully understand the good news he has for us. So take your Bibles in Exodus chapter 34 and follow along as I read. I'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole context. We're only going to focus in on two of the verses here. But starting in verse 1 in Exodus 34, it says, The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and and come up up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze uh, uh, graze upon upon the, that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we can learn about you. Lord, I pray that you help me this morning as I declare these truths from your mouth. Lord, I pray that you help us to see who you are and how that impacts us. And Lord, I pray that that will change us. We thank you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, let me introduce to you who God is. But I want to tell you, I'm not giving you my opinion. Here's the, here's the cool part about this passage is this is God describing himself. If you look, this is God speaking to Moses and saying, Hey Moses, I want to tell you who I am. 
going to give you a little background because I think we've got to understand what's happened. Uh, if we go back, and I'm not going to uh, read all the passages, but we're going to fall through some different passages. Back to Exodus chapter 20, all the way to Exodus 31. Uh, God is talking to Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God is revealing to Moses, here's the law. Here's how I want, we think of the Ten Commandments, but it goes beyond that. God's telling them, here's how I want you to worship. Here's how I want you to act. Here's how I want you to even to dress at times. And, and he's going through all of this in Exodus 20 through 31. Now, you can imagine it took a long time. And so we see at Exodus 31, look at there, Exodus 31, verse 18, and it says, And he, that's God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. I mean, first of all, can you imagine being Moses? I mean, here he is talking to God, and God says, Here, here's the tablets. And he takes them from the hands of God. And he has them. I mean, that must have been an incredible moment for Moses. Now, what's taking place? If you know your Bible, you know in chapter 32, it tells us that while Moses was up on the mountain for a very, very long time, the people got restless. Their leader, their, their, their guide were, was gone. And they thought maybe gone permanently. They thought maybe God had swallowed him up in the mountain and he, was, and he was gone. And so they began murmuring and complaining, which was very normal for them. And they're saying, they're saying to Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, who's the, uh, by default the leader, and they're saying, Aaron, what are we going to do? Where, what should we, which, where's Moses? And finally they decide, hey, this is what we're going to do. And he has them gather all of their, their gold jewelry and they bring it together and he melts it down and they form a golden calf and they begin to worship it and they begin to uh, dance and they begin to party. We see that uh, Moses then comes down from the mountain and tells us in, in Exodus chapter 32, look there, Exodus 32 verse 19, and as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And this guy was livid. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I mean, can, you can imagine what took place. He comes down and he has just been in the most intimate time that you can imagine experiencing with God. And he comes down and the people are doing the exact opposite. And he is just, he's had it. And he takes these tablets of stone and he throws them down and they break. We come to chapter 33, and we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, and we talked about prayer. In chapter 33, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, uh, f- take your people and go into the promised land. I'll bless you, yada, 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 but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, God, you got to come with us. And so he pleads with God, God, please come with us. And God says, okay, I will go. And then Moses makes one more request. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. It was one of the four points that we prayed about as a church. He says in in Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Moses said, it's not just enough you go. I want to know everything there is to know about you. I want to see you. And so God allows him to see him, and then he says to him, Moses, okay, now, now I, need to, I need to give you the, the laws again. And so he says, Moses, go, and the, the passage I just read, Moses, go back up to the mountain, take these tablets of stone that, that you make, and you bring it up, and I will again give you the law. And as he goes up and he gives him the law, and he uh, is about to do this again, he, he says, first, I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. 
And so we look at this passage and we can see a number of different things that God says about himself, but I want to kind of catalog it into four different descriptions that God makes and the implications for us. First of all, uh, we see God created all man, so he has the right to every one of us. We have addressed this before, but look in this passage and and see what God declares to Moses. It says in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. Now, now, if you notice in that, those, both those words, they are capital letters, all of them. We talked about that also a few weeks ago. And that, again, he's using a name that Moses was familiar with. He's using a name he had used before. It's the same word. It's Jehovah that Moses had been told that way back in Exodus chapter 3 when, when God came to Moses and Moses, you're going to lead my people. And Moses said, I can't do that. And God said, you can because I'm going with you. And he said, yeah, but the people won't listen to me. Who should I say is sending me? And you remember what? What God said to Moses, he said, I am that I am. That's the same idea of what he's saying here, and he's reminding Moses of that. What does that phrase, I am that I am, mean? God was saying to Moses, he, he implies he has always been. He's saying, Moses, I have always been. Not only that, um, I existed before anything else existed. And even be, uh, beyond that, I made everything in this universe. See, because what we need to understand is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, actually begins with the words, in the beginning God created. If you get that point wrong, everything else that follows in the Bible will also be wrong. If you don't understand that basic truth in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, then you are going to miss out on the whole story. See, in Genesis, we're introduced to this God. And this God created everything. He created the trees and the hills and the valleys. And, and he created the uh, fish and the birds and the, and the animals. He even created the sun. And the Bible tells us that he made it out of nothing. You ever do that? You ever go home, ladies, and say, I'm going to bake a pie today and you know, and you look and you realize, well, I don't have any ingredients, but that's okay. I'll make it out of nothing. <laughs> that would be an amazing pie. It would be zero calories. <laughs> It'd be perfect for any diet. It's not possible. But God made everything out of nothing. God did not work with pre-existing material. God worked with nothing. Think about that for a moment. He made the galaxies. You know, it's amazing as, as man grows in, its, in his knowledge and as we explore more and we look out into our universe and we see galaxy after galaxy after galaxy and God made all of that by just simply saying, let it be so. And then God begins to, as he unfolds through the word of God, he begins to tell us that all creation was made to testify to the glory and majesty of God. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There is this sense that that the Bible is telling us that the, the world around us was created completely to testify to the glory of God. And there is something about the wonder of creation. 
the wonder of walking along and seeing a huge canyon like the Grand Canyon or watching a powerful wave pound the shore. There's something about the wonder of creation that causes the human heart to say there is something bigger than us. Like I said, the man I talked to yesterday, he said that. He said, I, I know there's something bigger than me. But he didn't know what it was. But the pinnacle of all of God's creation was not the, the powerful wave. It was not the, the Grand Canyon. It was not any of that. The pinnacle of all of creation happened on day six when God said this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. The pinnacle of all of God's creation was one day when he said on day six, I want to make man. Now, I want to make man different than anything else because I want to make him like me. When we look back on the whole story of creation, we must acknowledge something, and we must acknowledge that creation itself is not the ultimate, but it sprang from the mind and the will and the hand of someone else. Here's the thing. As you go around in the world and you talk to people who have no clue who Jesus Christ is, You'll even have, some of them will even say to you, I don't know, I don't know anything about who your God is, but I know there's something out there bigger than me. And that means that everything in this universe has a purpose found in that powerful being. Everything. Whether it's the trees, or whether it's the, the valleys, or whether it's the, the bugs that we walk on. Everything in this universe has purpose found in that powerful something else. Because we're not the result of a cosmic accident. We are not the product of chance. We were created. And therefore, every one of us is the result of the plan and action of this being. And because he created us, because God created us, he has the right to tell us how to live our lives. And so since the very beginning, God began to tell man how best to live. It started with Adam and Eve when he said to Adam and Eve, you know, you can roam around this garden and everything is yours and everything is edible except for one tree. You can eat of the pomegranates, and you can eat of the grapes, and you, but you can't eat of that one tree. But Adam and Eve sinned. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke the ultimate purpose of creation. Oftentimes, though, Man, men will say this, and maybe you've had people say this, well, what is God, just some controlling monster that's trying to dictate my life? No, because here's the other side that sometimes we forget, and we're going to talk about this more, that God is good. And so in his goodness, he knows what is best for us. In God's goodness, he knew that the best thing for Adam and Eve was to not eat of that one tree. He knew that because he's good and, and because he loves them. And, and so therefore the gospel springs out of creation because the gospel is God's good response to man's wrong response to God's righteous 
commands. Let me say that again. The gospel is God's good response to man's wrong response to God's righteous commands. And since God created us, God owns us. And since God owns us, he tells us how we should live. And, but the problem is, is we broke that. But then we go on here and we see something else about God. We see that God is gracious and merciful. Not only is he the creator and so therefore he owns us, but he is gracious and merciful. And so he will temporarily hold back his wrath. Notice the next way in chapter 34 and verse 6 that God describes himself. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He used the name of the Lord there to indicate that he is the one who has always been because he created all things. And then he states to them uh, something that we see throughout the Bible. He states he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and loving. Now we're going to deal with loving separately but I want to talk about those other words because they're, voted, they're quoted throughout the rest of the Bible over and over again. You'll see them in the law. You'll see them in Psalms. You'll see them in the prophets. You'll see them in New Testament. Over and over again, you will see these words linked together describing God. They are the heart of the very self-revelation of who God is as he reveals himself to man. This is who God wants us to know that he is. You ever... Talk to someone and say, how would you describe yourself? What is that one thing they would say they would describe themselves? Here God comes and Moses says, God, I want to know more about you. And God says, you want to know more about me? Here I am. And these are how he describes himself. Because what God wants us to know more than anything else is that he is a compassionate, gracious God. These words all pile upon each other to express the gracious nature of God towards us. Let's dissect these words a little bit. First of all, he says in that verse, he is merciful. Merciful there is an interesting word. It's from the same root word as we get as they would get the word womb. And it gives the idea of a tender compassion. It describes the tender love of a woman for a child. So the Bible says that God has that compassionate parent-type care for us. That kind of blows out away the theory that God is this evil dictator in the sky. He's loving. He cares about you. It goes on and it says next he's gracious. If you look, it says he's gracious. The, the root word of that means to be inclined or to be bent. And it's the idea of being inclined to help someone. One defined it this way, an action from a superior to an inferior who has no real claim for gracious treatment. In other words, God who is big, God who is powerful, God who is strong, reaches down to the lowly man and and inclines himself to help us in any way he possibly can. That's gracious. And it's not because those he's helping deserve it, it's because of his feelings towards them. This word gracious is used more of God than anyone else in the Bible. That God is gracious. Again, it goes against the way that many people think about God. But he's gracious. He's gracious to us. He's inclined to want to help us and to be better to us than we deserve. We go on and we see in the passage it says he's slow to anger. 
That means he's patient. We see that in 1 Corinthians, when it talks about, uh, chapter 13, when it talks about love, agape love, it says that he is, um, he is pa- a patient, it is a patient love. The implication is that, um, that he has a long fuse. And why does he have a long fuse? Because he needs one. Because we're sinful people. And by piling all these words one upon another, uh, the Scripture exhausts the vocabulary to express the kindness and the graciousness of God. You know, we sometimes sum it up with the word love, and we'll talk about that word more in a minute, but we sum it up with the word love. But, you know, here's the crazy part, is when we say God loves us, yeah, but I, I love tacos, and we link the, you know, and we, so sometimes we get lost in the words. And so what God is trying to do here is he's trying to express in such a way that human language can't express the full gracious nature of God. You know, there, there, there are things which words fail. And I think describing the gracious nature of God is probably at the foremost uh, in that category. But Scripture is filled with descriptions of God's compassion, His gracious compassion. Let's look at a few here. First of all, in Deuteronomy, it says this, uh, When you are in tribulation, you will return to the Lord your God and obey His voice. Uh, you see, after tribulation, there's dot, dot, dot. You can go and read But the idea of the tribulation that's listed here and throughout uh, what he's talking about, Moses is talking about there, is tribulation of, his, of the people's own doing. It says, you will return to the Lord. And then notice what it says. For the Lord your God is merciful. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant. God is merciful. Let's look at another passage. Psalm 103, 8. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Does that sound familiar? It's almost the same wording that God used here that we see here. Uh, in, in this passage. In fact, it is the same wording. We see it in other places as well. But going on in this psalm, the psalmist continues and goes on, and it says here, and I want you to notice some of the word pictures that are used, because in, in verses 10 through 13, he uses three word pictures to describe God's graciousness. Notice what he says. He said, He does not deal with us according to sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Notice that first one, as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? As I said a few moments ago, when we talk about scientists and they explore the heavens and they they have these telescopes that can see and they, they keep discovering more and more galaxies, do you know what the end is to all of God's creation? Unlimited. And he's saying in this passage, that is how much God loves you doesn't end. You know, humanly speaking, our love sometimes has an end, doesn't it? But God's doesn't. It doesn't end. It's infinite. Notice this, the next one. It goes on in the next verse, in verse 12, and he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, this is an interesting thought, first of all, because the, the idea of the writer is giving a cross here is a round world. 
You know, it took scientists many, many, many years after this to discover that the world is round. But what, what he's saying is this, is if I was to travel east, if we were to go outside and we were to begin walking east, and somehow we could walk across the water and we could go across the ocean, and we were going to continue going east, when would we start going west? Never. What he's saying is this, is he's describing how far God puts away our sin from us when he forgives us. We're never going to meet up with it again. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes in, in our relationships with other people, you know, we'll say to them, I forgive you, and then later on something comes up, and maybe we don't even say it, but that, that thing they did to us that we said we forgave pops up into our head again. And maybe we say something, maybe we don't, but it's there. But with God, what he says is this, as far as the east is from the west, never again will you cross paths with that, because never again will I allow it to pop up, because that's what my forgiveness means amazing he goes on in the next part of that verse he says as a father shows compassion to his children so the lord shows compassion to those that fear him that is how god uh, has compassion on you he doesn't feel to you like a master to a slave or like a deity to a uh, humble created being he feels to us he relates to us like a father to his child he loves us God's describing himself this way. He's saying to Moses, Moses, here, I I want you to understand that I am merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I am loving, I am forgiving. We see this play out that throughout the Bible. In fact, his gracious nature is such a part of who he is that in Jonah, remember the book of Jonah? That God's gracious nature was so much a part of who God is that it caused Jonah actually, it caused him angst. Because he knew that God would had to exercise compassion. Look at look at the verse when God when Jonah is speaking. Remember just a quick summary of Jonah that God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, the the the, the enemy of the people of Israel, and He says, "Go to them and and preach to them, and and uh, that if they don't uh, change, that they're going to be destroyed." And so no, Jonah doesn't want to do that, so he runs the opposite way, and God brings him back. And he proclaims this message not because he wants to. Reluctantly, he proclaims it. And the people of Nineveh repent. And Jonah comes back to God. And look, look what he says in that passage. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? <laughs> you know, he's saying, I knew this was going to happen. Why? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Looky there, the same exact words. He says, God, I knew it. And he quotes this very self-revelation of God from Exodus 34 saying, I just knew that you would forgive these horrible people. That's why I didn't want to go. Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. He was afraid that God was going to be who he is. A gracious God. And it's such a part of who he is. 
Now, it's not just in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. And Ephesians tells us the story of God's grace and mercy towards us, perhaps better than anywhere else in Scripture. Look at Ephesians chapter, we looked at this verse last week, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sin. You were, you were no longer beating. You had no heartbeat. It had gone flat because of your sin. And there's nothing you could do about it. Because of your sin, you were were destined to separation from God completely. That passage goes on and says more, and it talks about how how, uh, that we were in darkness. We were in misery. We were completely separated from God. But I love this hopeless and pathetic story turns positive just a few verses later where it says, but God being rich in mercy. See, the Bible says that we're hopelessly and helplessly lost, but God loved us and showed us his great mercy through Jesus Christ. And that'll be talked about in two weeks more, but, and he saved us by grace through faith because he is a gracious, compassionate God. Again, this is taught throughout the New Testament. Just one more verse in the New Testament. Behold, in James it says, uh, Behold, uh, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I don't believe it's any accident that the very first words that God proclaimed of his character on that day to Moses were that he is a merciful and gracious and loving and compassionate God. Because that's who he is. But thirdly, I want to jump into the middle of that and see God is loving. And because God is loving, he offered a way to escape. It says in that passage that he is, he says, abounding in steadfast love. That, that the word in the Hebrew there is one of the most marvelous words in all of Hebrew vocabulary. It means that he is faithful, loyal, and continues to show goodness and mercy, and not because the object of that deserves it, but because of his love for them, because the giver chooses to give it. Martin Luther, when he was, when he was translating the Bible in, into German, uh, the portions that he translated, he, he uh, used the word, in, in about this steadfast love, he used the word grace. In other words, heaping on us blessings that we don't deserve. Others translate it uh, love or, or loving kindness. But it's this uh, love that God gives us. It's, it, it's something that we don't deserve, but he gives to us. And what's significant about this is it's not just simply love, but notice again what he says in verse set, 6. It's abounding in steadfast love. It's overflowing. There's no shortage. I like the, the old hymn that says it this way, describing the, uh, the love of God. It says, could we with ink fill uh, the ocean fill and were the sky a parchment made where every stalk on earth the quill and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole through those stretched from sky to sky. In other words, if we were to describe the love of God and write about it, we would drain the ocean. That's biblical. 
And this is exactly the God that every single person in the world wants. We want a God who's going to wrap his arms around us and, and give us these good things. But that's not the end of this story. And this is where the gospel continues on and must be produced. Because the fourth one we want to look at is that God is just and righteous. And so because he is just and righteous, he must punish the unbelieving wicked. See, we must first establish his love because it's not that God is wanting to judge. It's not that God is hoping to judge. It's not that God gets excited about judging. But it's because he's just and he's right. Look, if you will, uh, at something that is often overlooked in this passage because he's describing who he is. In verse 7, he continues on about this description and he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then notice what he says next. But who will by no means clear the guilty? I like actually how the NIV puts this because I think it's clear understanding. The NIV says it this way. He's descri- it describes God and then it gets to this point and he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let me, let me say that again. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And that phrase right there destroys the majority of what people think they know about God or what they want God to be. And that is this, that God is loving and God is merciful, but yet God is also right. And because he is right, and because he is always right in everything he does, and he is just in everything he does, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And the common view of God in our world sometimes is that God is, God is kind of like a lazy child. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Let me hear me out. This is the way sometimes I think we view God, is that you know, a lazy child who was asked, hey, go clean your room. And instead of dealing with the dirt of this world, its sin and its wickedness, he simply sweeps it under the rug, ignores it, and hopes no one will notice. Because why? Because many people cannot conceive of a God who would judge them for their sins. God is love. So why would he judge me? Because God is righteous. And in his love, he cannot ignore his holiness and his righteousness. See, because I looked and we saw how many times in the Bible it talks about how God is uh, gracious and how God is merciful and how God is abounding in steadfast love and how God is slow to anger, but just as many times you will see that God is righteous. Look what it says in Psalms 11, verse 7. "For, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. He loves righteousness. And the idea of righteousness is to be without fault. So he looks down, and yes, he loves each and every one of us, but he also sees people who aren't righteous perfectly. We see another passage in Psalm 89, 14. It says, The righteousness and justice of God are the foundation of your throne. In other words, what he's saying in that passage is that righteousness and justice are the very foundation of who God is. 
Just like love and all those things are as well, righteousness is. And so because of that, God would be wrong. If God looked down and he said, hey, here's sinful man. I love that sinful man. I care about that sinful man. But he's sinful. And so because he is right, he has to judge. And if he was to say, no, I'm not going to judge, he would no longer be righteous. So he looks down. Habakkuk takes it even a step further. He says, talking about God, your eyes are too pure to even look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. You can't do it. See, what man wants is a God who will never judge. But God's righteousness is the foundation of his rule, the foundation of his throne, and so to ignore sin would shake its foundation and would no longer allow him to be God. You see, so often, you know, people believe that God should not judge them for their sinful acts. But you know what I find interesting? You ever observe someone who believes that? Someone who believes that God should not judge them for their sinful act. Have you ever observed people like that when they're faced with undeniable evil? You ever ever observe someone like that when when their their son or their daughter is, is killed in a school shooting? What do they then say? We need vengeance. Why? Because they know wrong needs to be punished. But yet somehow we think we need that, that God should be the type that stands up in heaven and says, it's okay, I'll let it go. But when evil hits them hard, they don't want to let it go. And I'm not trying to belittle their hurt. I'm trying for us to understand and see that that God in his righteousness must punish evil in this world. So as God describes to Moses who he is, he tells him, Moses, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am slow to anger, I am abounding in steadfast love, but I cannot let evil go unpunished. We will see as we continue through this series how God introduces the good news into this scary problem. We will see that the God who forgives wickedness and yet at the same time does not leave the guilty unpunished resolves all of this through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, God is loving. God does love. Yet, God tells us he cannot let wickedness go unpunished. And so that is why, because of the loving nature of God, he did the unfathomable. He sent his son to earth to be tortured. Because the only possible substitute for wicked man was a sinless God. Now let me ask you this question as we close. 
Do you know that God of the gospel? Is that the God you know? Or are you still holding on to those gods of the the wrong assumptions that we talked about earlier? God loves you. And because God loves you, he doesn't want you to continue in sin. Because God loves you, he doesn't want to leave you in the, in the path of his wickedness, or his judgment. And so therefore, he sent Jesus. Again, as I said last week, how are you going to respond to the gospel? Let's pray. God, I am thankful that you are loving and gracious. I am thankful that you are patient. Lord, I know that for me, I am, I am not as patient with people over their sin as you are with me. And I am thankful that you are. Lord, I also know that I don't deserve your forgiveness, but you have offered it to me. Not because I am worthy or because anything I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ did for me. So God, I pray that you will help us to understand who you are. Help us to see you as the God who created all things, and therefore, because you created all things, you, you have the right to tell us what is right and wrong. Lord, I pray that you help us to, to live in a way that is pleasing to you. We thank you for all you've done. Lord, And as we head into our time of communion, I pray that you'll help us to realize the incredible weight of the sin that was placed on your Son Lord, and because of that, the opportunity for freedom from sin that we have. Lord, I pray that you help us to be grateful. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.